0: Thank you very much, Jennifer. It's a real pleasure to be here and to see friends and uh, familiar faces and to be in New York City, which is a fabulous place to be from a kid from California. But, um, so I really enjoy this meeting, and I thank uh, Dr. Coleman and Dr. Furman for inviting me uh, to present this. The topic I was assigned is to give an update on CAR T-cell therapy, and I know that you've received already some talks on CAR T-cells related to, for example, diseases such as myeloma. I'm going to give a brief introduction, so excuse me if some of that is familiar to you. I also want to survey the state-of-the-art of of where we stand with the treatment for CLL, as well as to potentially touch on some novel targets that we can use for uh, this type of therapy. Now, the CAR T-cell therapy is very exciting. It uh, stimulated a lot of interest, but before I get into it, just have disclosures, a number of groups I work with, and uh, so I just want to give full disclosure here first. As far as the uh, CAR T cell therapy, chimeric antigen receptors are a uh, distinctive man made, uh, or I should say person made um, receptor. Um, and in contrast to what we see on the, on the left, where we have a typical T cell receptor, which is in a complex of various proteins, they recognize a peptide that's been digested and then presented by an antigen presenting cell in the context of a major histocompatibility complex. In contrast, uh, this is not required for uh, the CAR T cell because it actually utilizes a receptor that can bind to an antigen independent of the MHC. I seem to be fading in and out here. But in any case, um, where we got here is to take advantage of the receptors that we have on uh, various uh, proteins. Uh, The antigen receptor, of course, uh, that we know best is the antibody uh, and it has a potential for binding with high affinity to a free antigen. Uh, and if one takes the FV portion and puts it into a single polypeptide chain, uh, then this is uh, considered a single-chain FV fragment, which then can then serve as a targeting moiety for the receptor. Then it also borrows the CD3-zeta chain, which is very important for stimulation. It's the stimulatory chain that is used by the T-cell receptor complex. And so making this chimeric antigen uh, was actually found to be effective in stimulating the T-cell to actually uh, recognize and to direct activity against the cell bearing an antigen that was actually recognized by the single-chain FV fragment. Now we've seen that we have various generations from this because it was found that without any other co-stimulation that the uh, antigen receptor complex was not allowing for maintenance of T-cell activity and so the idea of putting co-stimulatory molecules either CD28 or 41BB uh, came about with the second generation vectors and then you know the limitations on generations of vectors is only limited by one's imagination a third generation is considering uh, taking both the CD28 and one bb and linking them up in tandem. Uh, there's other fourth generations and beyond. For example, co-transfecting with various cytokine transgenes, a so-called armored CAR, uh, notably with IL-12, and also using co-stimulatory ligands and other types of ways to stimulate the T-cells above and beyond what's stimulated by the uh, chimeric antigen receptor itself. But I must say that most of the uh, clinical trials and data that we've assimilated to date in, in, in humans is revolving around the second-generation vector. And so this is where we're going to concentrate, either with the CD28 co-stimulatory domain or the 4.1BB domain. Now, the various systems for introducing those genes into T cells is varied. Uh, some have considered using transfection approaches, uh, for example, a Sleeping Beauty transposase, However, more commonly, retroviruses or lentiviruses are used to introduce these genes into T cells, and they have differences. Retroviruses are fairly easy to make into large quantities. Uh, They have a high transfection efficiency, but uh, perhaps uh, limited tropism for non-dividing cells. Lentiviruses actually have a better tropism for T cells and can actually uh, transduce cells that are not actually rap- rapidly dividing. And so, maybe more effective in transducing cells over the long term. But they're more difficult to make, and they have to be uh, into complex production systems, which is to uh, do this transfection technique to cause what's called a pseudotyping of the virus. But I think each one has its advantages and disadvantages, and I think the retroviruses or lentivectors are the ones that are used, and I'll highlight which products use which. Now, therapy of engineered T cells is being carried out in a rapid place, and I'm not mentioning the therapy with NK cells, uh, which are also engineered to express CARs. But the therapy of engineered T cells can be of either two types. Uh, one is to transduce the uh, tumor uh, the T cells with a a T-cell receptor that actually can recognize a processed peptide from the tumor cell. And this generates tumor antigen-specific T-cell receptors. And this is being uh, looked at primarily in the case of solid tumors, where most of the antigens that might be distinctive for the tumor are inside the cell. So this is very capable of taking an antigen which is inside the cell that can be processed and then put out on the MHC molecules and then recognized by the T-cells. Chimeric antigen receptor T cells, however, uh, express the chimera that I mentioned to you, and they provide you with um, T cells that can actually recognize uh, target cells independent of any MHC, but these are cells that are expressed on the surface. Now, for hematopoietic malignancies, we take advantage of the fact that B cells are very differentiated tissue that we can actually uh, do without, Uh, in other words, the uh, antigens that distinguish B cells from other cells are so distinctive that if we target the B cell differentiation antigens, uh, that may suffice for limiting the tumor that's of that lineage. And most of these have targeted the protein CD19, which is restricted to the B cell. Now this is uh, the, uh, 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 the early um, uh, trial that led to the registration uh, of the first CAR T cell product. It had a fairly reasonable toxicity profile, and some of the toxicities I'll highlight in other aspects of the talk uh, referencing for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. But the efficacy of this was clearly striking in that these patients were young adults who had acute lymphocytic leukemia, and having a a, a very high response rate, a complete remission rate of 63% was clearly uh, something that caught everyone's attention. And this allowed for the FDA to review the data, and then we came with the first product that was then approved. Uh, And the price tag there, I understand, is due primarily to the cost of the bags that they use, which are very expensive. Um, But um, it is a sticker shock, but the problem is is that this is a one-time treatment, sort of like taking one pill and you're done. Um, Now, it's very important, uh, this is the uh, product of... Uh, and uh, this is, uh, actually requires that the hospital or the people that are administering the product be approved uh, with a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy because it's very tricky. When you give these cells to patients, uh, fireworks can happen, and you have to anticipate uh, various toxicities and deal with them in a very systematic way so you can mitigate the long-term consequences. And this is a very important aspect of CAR T-cell therapy, which is primarily done uh, in-house. These cells actually have very strong activity against lymphoma. This is a very dramatic representation of a patient with refractory diffuse large cell lymphoma. And three months after receiving a gene therapy uh, CAR T-cell product had complete resolution in the lymphadenopathy as shown uh, uh, on the right. Um, And this led to the FDA approval just about uh, two months later of another gene product, um, axi-captagene citralucil, which is uh, the kite product that also recognizes CD19. And this was approved for patients with uh, diffuse large-cell lymphoma that had been relapsed or refracted to therapy, also for primary metastanal large-cell lymphoma and diffuse large-cell lymphoma arising from follicular lymphoma. Again, the same risk evaluation and mitigation strategy applied. Interestingly, this product was offered at a lower price, and in in reference to the fact that competition is always a good thing, I understand the price of the original product has come down, too, uh, to be in the competitive ballpark of around four hundred thousand per per bag. Uh approvals being considered under uh consideration, lysocapdogene miralucil which is a a, a JCAR-17, which also recognizes CD19. Uh, At the ASCO, Michael Wang had presented very exciting data on relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma, uh, also showing that uh, patients had a over 50% complete response rate, and these seem to be of long-lasting duration. And it's now being put forward to the FDA, and we anticipate that there may be uh, approval of this product uh, coming forward. So here we stand with now three products or two that have been approved and one extra one. We can reference the pivotal trials that resulted in the approval of these products for patients with lymphoma. And these are the Juliet trial, which is the uh, tisogen uh, leucicil, uh, the uh, anti-CD19, uh, product by the Penn Group, and uh, we also had the Zuma trial, which resulted in the Axocabagene uh approval, and now the Transcend data. So how can we compare these? Which one is better? How, how are we to decide which ones to give our patients? Well, it's very, very complicated. This is a one-time therapy. Uh, I think that these are the different types of products that we have. How do they compare? Well, uh, one actually um, is very important to note, is that they all have the same receptor for the antigen. Namely, they all bind CD19, so that part is simple. However, they have different co-stimulatory domains. One has, um, actually this is the spacer region that separates the antigen binding portion with the, um, the trunk of the uh, transmembrane domain, and they differ here quite substantially. Uh, but importantly, the co stimulatory domain. This is the internal cytoplasmic domain that is responsible for stimulating the cell. And you can see that 41VB is popular with the uh, trial that was done in the Juliet trial and also the Transcend trial and whereas the CD28 was used by the uh, Zuma trial uh, for the Kite product. And these are differences, and, and actually as more experience is gained, what can we say? Well, the 4-1BB seems to allow for expansion. It the correlative of science have shown that maybe you get greater degree of central memory T-cells from this. It seems like the T-cells are able to last longer and persist longer in patients after the infusion where the CD28 may be more like a sugar high, where the T cells are expanding more rapidly and allow for perhaps greater control of a very aggressive disease, but there also may be uh, difficulty in maintaining the T cells for a long time. This could be a pro or a con. In many of the patients who achieved a complete response in this trial, Uh, About two-thirds or three-quarters of them uh, had recovery of the CD19-positive normal B cells, uh, which is not the case with the other two trials, which result in more long-lasting depletion of B cells. Uh, So it really remains to be determined which product is better. Um, The number of patients treated with all of these is comparable, and of course the number of toxicities uh, with some nuances I think are comparable. I get the impression that as we go along, uh, we are being better able to address the toxicities that occur with treatment, and I think that has mitigated some of the problems that are associated with this type of treatment. And the response rates, actually the six-month CRs, and I only highlight the CRs because th- given the expense and the problems of administering this type of therapy, we should really focus on the CR rate. Uh, the CRs are truly stellar in that they result in undetectable minimal residual disease frequently and really a prolonged survival after, after therapy. And you can see that we're ranging anywhere from 30 to 50% with these products. And I think that uh, given the fact that these patients typically are without other forms of treatment, that's actually a plus. Well, how can we say, are there going to be randomized trials between these types of uh, uh, therapies? I doubt it. For one thing, there's differences between patients. We all know that, given the differences in ages. That results in differences in donor T cells, which have to be manipulated by the product. We also have differences in what's called bridge therapy. In patients who are very aggressive with aggressive disease, sometimes you just have to hold them down because the disease is so aggressive in the time from when you freeze the patient to when you give the CAR T cell product. And that could be anywhere from two to four weeks of time. And the bridge therapy is allowed for the products with the 4.1 BB ligand. In the Zuma trial, they did not allow for bridge therapy the type of lymphal depletion which is given can actually influence the outcome. And lymphal depletion is perhaps an important aspect, but we don't have consensus on what the lymphal depletion strategy is. And as closely, we also have differences in the CAR T cell product as shown here. And that means that we have different expansion techniques and different doses. And here's the real problem, too, in that this is a therapy with one shot on goal. Namely, if you look at the co-stimulatory domains, they may differ, but the, uh, the binding region is quite similar. In fact, they use the same anti-CD19 binding receptor, and it's problematic in that patients who reject the CAR T-cells will typically not accept the CAR T-cells that are given a second time. And so this makes it very problematic to have a follow-up study which uh, allows for treatment with the other product in patients who felt the, uh, the previous product. Well, what can you say about chronic lymphocytic leukemia? Well, actually, it's quite exciting in that the first patient treated with CAR T-cell therapy was a home run, published in the New England Journal in 2011. And this patient had very refractory disease, had uh, the um, marked expansion in T-cells, uh, had the de- development of tumor lysis syndrome. Uh, but apart from the tumor lysis syndrome, uh, the only other grade 3-4 toxicity was lymphopenia. And this patient had persistent CAR T-cells for over six months, and I understand had uh, prolonged uh, depletion of B cells, but achieved a complete remission without detectable um, minimal residual disease. Uh, As a consequence, however, of depleting B cells, they had hypogammaglobulinemia that didn't persist, requiring the patients be maintained with intravenous immunoglobulin. Okay, well, this is all we have then. I mean, despite the success that we had initially, perhaps because of all the small molecules that are being tested in CLL, it became a very complex playing field to introduce CAR T cell therapy. So we have approvals in acute lymphocytic leukemia. We have approvals in diffuse large cell lymphoma. But it's actually been late for the CAR T cell development in CLL. And this is all the published data on CAR T cell therapy that we have from the first trial that I mentioned to you with one patient, uh, which was a home run. Uh, we have actually now 135 patients that have been published on. I must say that these patients are older than patients with fuselar cell lymphoma with a median age of 61, ranging from ages 40 to 77. Um, and 68%, 68 percent of these patients had prior ibrutinib therapy. Uh, 25 had prior venetoclax therapy. And that The proportion of patients with prior small molecule inhibitor therapy is probably likely to go up with the approval of these agents. Uh, Nine were status post marrow transplantation and 12 had Richter's transformation. Many had a complex karyotype, although it wasn't tested on all of them, over half had complex karyotype, and over three-quarters had deletion 17P and mutations in P53. These patients represent a therapeutic problem, and obviously it's a group of patients which has uh, difficulty in achieving a successful long-term outcome. Well, what can we say? When we compare all these trials, can we glean something about them that helps us to determine which types of uh, therapy might be better? Well, it's important to note that the pre-therapy, the lymphodepletion therapy, uh, in cases where there is none, lymphodepletion therapy, this is primarily to reduce the number of T-cells and allow for expansion of the CAR T-cells inside the patient. In those protocols where they didn't have any lymphodepletion therapy, the response rate was very dismal. I mean, uh, 20%, but it's a very small uh, number of cases. So it seems that lymphodepletion is necessary. However, we have a variety of different lymphodepleting regimens uh, using fludarabine and cyclophosphate or cyclophosphate or bendamustine or pentostatin and cyclophosphate. So there's really not a unifying consensus here. It's also, these all target the CD19 receptor as I mentioned before, with one exception, uh, one small trial reported with an uh, anti-kappa light chain CAR T cell product, and the advantage here is that you might be able to spare half the B cells by going after only the kappa expressing B cells. Uh, However, only two patients were reported in this trial, and the outcome was only um, uh, 0% complete responses, so it's hard to know. As far as the CD19, we have the more recent trials um, that have uh, the uh, second one there has actually used a humanized anti CD19, so we're getting away from the mouse anti CD19 receptor that might be potentially more immunogenic. And what's really been an important advance is the understanding that perhaps the drug abrutininum might enhance the uh, activity of the CAR T cell in patients. And this was reported at the ASH, and I think that. Um, It's really quite striking in that uh, two different studies, which had patients receiving the anti CD19 CAR therapy uh, with uh, concomitant use of ibrutinib, had complete remission rates that were in the range of around 70 percent. And so uh, the questions abound as to why this should be in terms of how the uh, therapy uh, with ibrutinib may modulate the cells or reduce the cells uh, in the lymph nodes, allowing for perhaps greater ability for the CAR T-cells to target. Uh, there's a variety of different conjectured mechanisms, but I think that these are conjectures that have not been formally tested. But it may be an interesting aspect with regard to the application of abrutinib with CAR T-cell therapy, particularly in patients with CLL. There's still toxicities we have to deal with. The cytokine release syndrome can be quite striking. Fortunately, we've been able to address this more with tocilizumab, which uh, binds to the IL-6 receptor and helps mitigate some of the symptoms of the cytokine release syndrome. But still, over half the patients with CLL in all the reports that I showed you have reported to have the uh, tumor, uh, cytokine release syndrome. And in, depending on the study, a quarter to 60% of cases may have grade three cytokine release syndrome. And uh, it's interesting in the paper by uh, Turtle uh, where they had patients who had prior use of abrutinib prior to receiving uh, CAR-T cell therapy, there was some mention of potentially higher incidence of cytokine release syndrome when the patients transitioned from abrutinib therapy to CAR-T cell therapy. However, in the trials that I mentioned to you where there was concomitant use of abrutinib with CAR-T cell therapy, there appeared to be a lower incidence of at least grade 3 and beyond uh, cytokine release syndrome. We also have problems of neurologic toxicity, in that uh, they seem to be uh, less common, though, than in patients with diffuse large cell. And uh, about uh, zero to about a third of the cases may have uh, neurologic toxicity, but typically less than grade three. Uh, Tumor lysis syndrome can really occur, and I think the same algorithms apply for assessing patients at high risk for tumor lysis apply, And that close monitoring may be required with addressing the tumor lysis. But I don't believe any patient has required hemodialysis because of tumor lysis syndrome to this point in time. Uh, There have been deaths attributable to CAR T cell therapy in patients with CLL. And only three out of 129 patients have been reported, which is actually a pretty low frequency of deaths that are directly attributed to therapy. And it's quite uh, striking that a couple of deaths were reported in the more recent studies with ibrutinib and CAR-T cell therapy, unexplained deaths, which may have been cardiac in origin. And we really need to understand this. There's some indication that perhaps patients who have a cardiovascular history may be at greater risk for maybe sudden arrhythmias that occur with CAR T-cell therapy. Something we have to pay attention to because if this therapy is going to be able to take advantage of things, I think we need to uh, address certainly the items that might result in that type of toxicity. Well, if we can get into complete remission, I think the outlook is very good. There's long progression, free survival and overall survival without therapy except for uh, support. And I think that uh, other antigens may come to bear with regard to uh, one that we've worked on. And in the interest of time, I won't have time to go over some of the uh, newer aspects of targeting this interesting antigen, which we've obsessed with over the last few years to try and figure out how it works. And in clinical trials with uh, monoclonal antibodies that are in multiple centers along with uh, antibody drug conjugates, uh, there is some interest there. Uh, but I think also in terms of being able to direct it against this particular antigen uh, does make some value in terms of the fact that it may be specific to the uh, leukemia cell or the lymphoma cell and not expressed on cells of the normal immune system. So I think that is there a place for CAR T-cell therapy uh, for CLL? Well, given the advent of all these wonderful new drugs that we have with the potential for being able to induce long-lasting progression-free survival with drugs such as abrutinib. Are the ability to induce deeper emissions with drugs such as venetoclax, it may be a challenge. And we had a debate at the recent IWCL meeting whether is there a role for CAR T cell therapy in CLL. And I believe there may be, because even with the drugs such as venetoclax, we're seeing about Uh, perhaps a third of patients, even with venetoclax therapy, that cannot clear undetectable minimal residual disease. And I think that uh, we may also have patients who have very adverse features that uh, do require additional therapy. And this may be one way of of salvaging those patients. I must say that uh, it's been stated that, just like what the transplanters say all along, that if they get to treat patients earlier, they'll have a better outcome. And so, they're uh, actually with the CAR T cell therapies, patients who have a lower tumor risk, um, lower, lower, lower tumor burden, may actually have less toxicity. And so, therefore, it may be possible to mitigate some of the problems that I mentioned before by having uh, patients with minimal residual disease who wish to clear the disease and potentially achieve a cure uh, for their CLL. So, I think I'll leave it there in the interest of time, and thank you very much for your attention.